126 to 108. Bulls will put it in play. Ball game over. Bulls win. Bulls win. Bulls win. Here in Paris, we thank France very much for their hospitality. Thank you, France. And France says, you're welcome. Or what is that? I forgot what your welcome is. Thanks to Delian. So we say merci and they say. Delian. Right? I think. It was nice to know the score at the end of the game, even though you didn't maybe know the score during the game because the scoreboards weren't working. But, hey, that's all right. It's all fine and good. The Bulls get a huge win, and they dispatch a lesser opponent, which is something they've had a a difficult time doing this year. Joining us now to talk Bulls is our 670thescore.com web editor and our Bulls reporter, Cody Westerland. He's on Twitter at Cody Westerland, and he's on the Score Hotline, presented by Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. He's also on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Chicago 670thescore. What's up, Cody? Hey, how's it going? The, uh, the joke about the scoreboard and not knowing it made me laugh because when I was in Ames, Iowa, I was covering a high school basketball game one time, and I literally wrote a story on there being three different final scores of a game that no one could agree on um, based on the scores table and the two team books and what was going on the score. And I was looking so hard the other day to find that story, and I can't find it in the archives. But uh, luckily, that game was like 10 or 14 points, so it didn't matter, but it could have been mass chaos. For, who, for whom were you working at that time? The Ames Tribune, so um, just the local paper in uh, covering Iowa State and high school sports. So what was the reaction that, that you got from the, the coaches not being able to uh, agree on what the final score was? You know, it was like the fact that it was a 12-point game and it was just a bunch of really nice coaches and kids playing a Friday night game in Iowa, there was not much uh, consternation or, or anyone being fired up about it so it was actually it turned out to be just fine but it always makes me chuckle when like the scores table goes out for us at the united center our stats are lagging when the game's in paris whatever it is it's like well we used to have to keep our own stats so like this is this is easy stuff when you go to the united center and cover the nba cody i want to ask you a question that i asked dan in the last segment uh, but i'll change it a little bit for you so you can give some of your expertise knowing these guys how can the Bulls effectively run an offense where Vooch is the point person to run the offense through? I think it just starts with getting him in more actions and getting him the ball in the flow and on the move a little bit off rolls, um, getting him into space and using maybe Zach and DeMar a little bit more as decoys or, or have the ball out of their hands more quickly, right? Like, Bulls played really good basketball yesterday. I thought the only poor stretch they really had of the game was a little bit in the first half. Um, they had some clunky offensive possessions where the ball stuck a little bit with Zach or DeMar. They got out of that quickly um, and then went about their business. And I think with Vooch, and we talk about this, the, the strengths really overlap for, for Zach and DeMar in many ways because they both are really good isolation players in their own way. Like, DeMar, because he's smart, he can draw fouls, he has that mid-range game. Zach, because of his explosiveness, he can go around you and dunk at the rim or pull up quickly um, and shoot three-pointers and catch-and-shoot situations, even if there's someone in his face. But when you got those two guys that like isolation ball, that makes it more difficult for Vooch for long stretches. So you got to, I think, just move the ball more quickly. And when Vooch talks about, you guys have talked about this all week on your show, what he was saying after the Warriors game on Sunday – 
it wasn't just the fact that he got some post-ups against smaller guys in the Warriors that he took advantage of. It's that he caught the ball in space a little bit, whether it was in the roll, whether it was in the flow of the offense. And he likes that little six, eight foot um, floater shot in the lane or that little baby hook that he can use very quickly. So I think those are the areas that you can look at it. You saw a couple times in the game yesterday where they doubled DeMar, the Pistons did, got the ball to Vooch in the middle of the floor and he sprayed it out to Zach or, or Patrick Williams in the corners. Like Vooch really likes doing that too. So I think that's probably the way to do it. DeMar DeRozan finished with nine defensive rebounds, and Vooch had 11 of those. But, boy, the they, the Bulls struggle on, on the defensive glass sometimes. They allowed 17 offensive rebounds, six alone by Isaiah Stewart, who's who's a, a, a big, strong, quick guy in there. But I'm just trying to figure out a way. When Drummond can't play, and there are some, you, there's some matchups where Billy knows he can't play him because he's out of shape and slow, and he's just five, six fouls immediately waiting to happen – that's where I got to see Patrick helping out a little bit more. Why are they struggling so much as a team to clear the glass and and keep another team from getting those second chances? I mean, it's because they have two good defensive rebounders on their team in Vooch and Drummond. They play the same position, and Billy's choosing not to play one of them now for long stretches. I mean, Patrick Williams has been a bad rebounder for almost his entire NBA career. Now, he's shown flashes here in the last couple months where, like, we get really proud of him when he has a good game or he makes some really strong rebounds in key moments. So uh, the potential is there. The consistency hasn't been close to being there. Zach Levine's filling up the stat sheet a little bit more lately, it feels like, Mm -hmm. other than just scoring. But he's never been a premier rebounder for his position or anything like that. DeMar DeRozan. Um, not really either. So they got a bunch of average to blow average rebounders and one good one in, in Vooch. And you think, well, that's kind of what every team is, right? The center should be getting the rebounds. Yes, but the other guys need to clean up everything else. Just because you have one guy doesn't mean it's going to address a problem. And look, it's it's still one of the wildest stats of the Bulls this year. Is that I mean, they've been a top four or five defensive rebounding team in the NBA for almost the entire season. That's, that's but incredible. that has been going downhill lately and been a really big problem. And some of that ties back to Billy choosing to play Derek Jones Jr. Um, for his explosiveness on offense and ability to guard pick and roll a little bit more than Andre Drummond on the defensive end. Cody, what's sustainable from the, the win against the Warriors and the win against the Pistons? Ooh, that's a million-dollar question. I bet Billy Donovan would love to, uh, would love to know that. But I, I would point out one thing. There's no reason that Zach Levine can't get to the hoop a ton. There's no reason that DeMar DeRozan can't get to the hoop a ton. And DeMar was back yesterday healthy. He said his quad was feeling good. We saw that dunk early in the game. Um, was a great sign from him. But Zach Levine's really been getting to the free throw line a lot lately. And part of that is his right hand injury. He's admitted has made his outside jump shot a little bit more difficult. I think since he banged up um, the hand against the Wizards there last week. I mean, we're going back nine, ten days now. Uh, he's 422 on three-pointers. So clearly he's having a little bit of a problem feeling the ball, um, getting his touch from the outside. But he's gone to the basket a ton. And look, he has that athleticism, explosiveness. And I think now you see he had the good December. He's taken off more here in January. I think he has more confidence and trust in his physical well-being and just strength of uh, his surgically repaired knee. So go to the hoop all the time. Finish a ton. I mean, that gives the Bulls opportunities, even if he doesn't get the calls, which he and the Bulls love to complain about. It creates chances for Vooch or Patrick Williams on the glass when the defense is out of position. So I would look at that. Have Zach keep attacking the hoop, I think, was a great sign for the Bulls. Kobe White's looked terrific, and he's making the most of his minutes. He's been an efficient scorer. His ball handling has improved. As we start looking for this in this next stretch of games, is he earning more time? 
Yeah, I mean, I think he should. I think he's outplayed Io DeSumo for, for long stretches here lately. And now look, Io and just about everyone on the Bulls was pretty good yesterday against the Pistons. They took care of business. That was a good sign. But uh, Kobe's made more game-changing plays. I, I loved the stretch at the start of the fourth quarter yesterday where I think he had eight straight points for the Bulls. Because yep. if he doesn't have that stretch, maybe it's all of a sudden a five- or eight-point game instead of the Bulls holding that 12-14 point lead safely that that they really did for almost all the fourth quarter. So he feels like he knows when he has to step up in these moments, and it's some of these times when he's on the court and Zach or DeMar isn't out there and they need more. And his his ball handling so much better, and that's giving him the ability to go around people in a way he didn't have before. That opens up opportunity for him from the outside, for others from the outside or inside. So, yeah, I think Kobe White should keep playing more. Um, and obviously the Bulls are, are hedging a little bit towards small ball a little more often here with Derek Jones Jr. playing more backup center for them and such. And Kobe fits into that. So I see no reason not to. He's a guy they should be playing more to because, you know, like February 9th is the trade deadline. He's a guy set to be a restricted free agent. So you want to see what you have in him. You want to shop him to other teams to see what they might offer, too. Speaking of the trade deadline, it's it's been fairly uh, well reported that the Bulls, at least for now, are not necessarily thinking about making any drastic changes. When you hear that, why why do you think the Bulls feel that way, and what is to be gained by them not making some moves to try and improve the roster? I think it's because they'd be getting back like 50 cents on the dollar for anything they'd want to be trading, right? So... The NBA just doesn't care about centers uh, in a playoff setting when you're talking about conference semifinal, conference final, NBA finals games. No one's going to pay big money for a center unless they're basically Jokic or Embiid and they're all NBA or they affect the game um, on both ends of the floor. And Nikola Vucevic is not a good enough defensive player for people to give up much for him on the trade market. So I think the reason... If the trade deadline passes and Vooch is still on the team, it's because the Bulls would be like, well, the only offer we got for Vooch was a second round pick and we'd rather just take a run at it um, and see what we can do with this team. Give us a little bit more information to evaluate this group together as what their ceiling was. Still have bird rights on and bring them back if you wanted to sign and trade them if you wanted to um, to a team that might be a little bit more receptive in the season to dealing something and have a little bit more flexibility. So I really think it comes back to that. Like these big names that they'd be trading, I'm looking at two or three of them. Zach Levine, I don't see anyone giving up massive um, players or draft capital for Zach Levine when he's half a season into a five-year deal coming off that knee surgery. And look, again, I just said he's more healthy and feeling more like himself, but still it doesn't feel like teams would be racing to the door to give up a dollar for him on a dollar. So uh, two of those three guys there, Vooch and Zach, I, I just don't think they'd get the proper return for that That really moves the needle as much as those guys are worth to the Bulls. DeMar's a different story, and we can talk about him if you want, but it's also a little bit of a complicated one. When is the next time that Arturis Karnaschovas will sit in front of reporters and answer all their questions? I would assume the afternoon, evening of February 9th when the trade deadline passes would be my best guess. He spoke last year at that time when the Bulls did nothing at the trade deadline and then kind of end up adding Tristan Thompson on the buyout market, obviously, was the only move they really made there. So uh, that's when I would expect the next time to be to to a group setting. Um Certainly can request him, and I know the Bulls beat has requested him in recent weeks and, and gotten a no. So um, 
I don't expect that to change before the trade deadline. And so what do we ask with that opportunity? When, when, when it's time to really understand the direction of this franchise, maybe some of the moves will help tell the story at that point, but I, I'd, I'd like to know where they're going. That is a wonderful question. And I would explain or I would ask them, how do they balance the, the present versus the future in the sense of like, how do you know when to flip it? And what do you have to have on a roster to feel like it has a ceiling that's high enough um, to win a championship? And look, we could ask and I would ask direct questions about, do you think you can win a championship around Zach Levine is certainly one that should be asked. I would expect him to sidestep those. Largely, you can ask about what you could get on the trade market for, for DeMar, some of these veterans but he's not going to to ask those. So that's a good question. I mean, leading up to that, we should think about how to frame the questions um, to, to properly get an answer that gives you insight without throwing players under the bus is what executives never want to do, obviously. Um, but there are, are things that I think they could learn from that. But um, where does Patrick Williams fit into this too? Like, do you think he would have a bigger role in breakout if you had one fewer offensive star player on your team, I think that's a big one, right? Because when we talk about that, we talked about the overlapping skill sets of Zach Vooch um, and DeMar, and there's just not enough oxygen sometimes for, for Patrick Williams to get shots. And the hard part is when mm -hmm. he doesn't have that opportunity, you don't know how to evaluate him where he fits in, in the big picture. So I would ask about that evaluation of him and how he fits in the team as well. You said the DeMar stuff is complicated and we could get into it if we wanted to. Well, I want to. So get into the DeMar stuff when it comes to the trade deadline. Well, certainly. I mean, DeMar loves Chicago, right? And he's signed through the end of this year and then another another year of that big money contract next year. There's around, what, three years, $82 million total when he signed it. So I think you could get a decent return for DeMar to the right team on the trade market this year because they'd get two playoff runs with him but not be beholden to $27 million a year for years into the future. It'd just be one more year. So I think you could in theory, retool a little bit by trading DeMar. But then all of a sudden you're getting into the complicated factor of like, he's a star free agent. And I mean, however you want to use the word star, you're welcome to, but he was an all NBA player and all star for the bulls. Um, in, in that regard, you're shipping him out. What does that reflect upon you? Are you giving up too early on him? Stuff like that. He loves it here. He might be, might not want to move to the next spot. Um, unless it is a championship team, certainly, maybe he's open to that. But but I do think that's a factor that's interesting to me. Like, he he is the anchor of their floor, right? Like, this is a really bad team, probably, if DeMar's not on it. We're looking at a team that's eight or ten games under 500, probably, without DeMar. But you kind of trade him, all of a sudden, you might have a higher ceiling for the future and a lower floor. And you know what? That's what a lot of fans would love to have right now, I think, for the Bulls. A little bit lower floor for their better long-term future. But I, I just I, I don't think it's as simple as just clicking the trade button on DeMar because he is a star player, um, because of what he's kind of meant and what he wants to do with the rest of his future. And you got to find the right team, too. What do you make of the Lonzo Ball videos and talk about him? Yeah, you know, I I kind of asked like a couple of people around the Bulls, like why why was he why did he even post those videos, right? And I I feel like he he wants to have like almost this outreach or relationship with fans to like show how hard he is trying, right? Because we know he loves the game, we know he hates being away from it, and we know it's been a point of of contention 
Um, the fact that he's not back just is a big reason why the Bulls haven't had as much success as they wanted. So I, I think he's obviously yearning to play, and that's just his way of showing how much um, he's putting into it. But I don't make much of the videos themselves, right? Like at all, he, he kind of barely jogged up a half a step and dunked. It's good that he can get up to 10 feet, but none of that was game action. And the key part of that, the huge key part of those videos, none of that was cutting at full speed. And none of this matters whatsoever with his knee health until he cuts at full speed, goes to sleep at night, wakes up the next day and doesn't have discomfort or has very, 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 very minimal discomfort. And he's not at that point of cutting at full speed or dealing with um, little to no discomfort. That's what I was thinking, too. They didn't show that maybe after he dunked, the camera cut away and he collapsed and was crying and hard, <laughs> screaming in pain. Yeah, I mean, I, I do appreciate he at least has a grasp of reality, I think, on the situation, right? Like, he was pretty firm the other day telling Casey Johnson and Cowley that he doesn't think it's career-ending. Um, he's doing everything he can to get back this year. But he admits, like, there is some point where the ramp or, or the runway runs out and he doesn't have enough time to get back. Like, he's realistic about the fact that even if he's cleared for, like, full basketball activity, he doesn't get to play a game in a week, right? Like, this is three or four weeks of ramp-up and hard practice and taking a day off and then ramping it up again. So he seems to understand it. Um, while, while missing the Bulls and the action as much as uh, he has been here. Cody Westerland, thank you as always, sir. Yep, take care, guys. We'll talk football when we come back. Lawrence, you said something when we were discussing this topic. Looking at the remaining viable NFL quarterbacks, there are eight of them. What do they have in common? They're all in their 20s. Mm-hmm. All eight quarterbacks left are in their 20s. And you coined it. You said that part of this is due to a lost generation of quarterbacks that were were just now emerging from that that fallow period. I did a little back of the envelope sort of note taking here. Yeah, and it's it's amazing. It's really bad, it's, right? It's, like, a, it's amazing. When you start looking at the drafts, basically between I, 2008 and 2016. It's I it, it's a bunch of it's a bunch of missing dudes. It's crazy, and I didn't even I didn't go back to '08 quite as far. I thought I could hold it to, a, but even even not doing that, just the success stories all come with a yeah, but, and the failures are legion. Yeah, there there's the Geno Smith one inside there where you go, oh, you know, it, it took him a took him a decade. But he's back and viable. And it's one year. I mean, who and knows? And it's one year, but he did go to a Pro Bowl. But there's just a dearth of quarterbacks that hit between then and when Patrick Mahomes gets drafted. And it, and it may also, in large part, have been due to a generational cohort where teams didn't want guys getting a real shot at competing with them or didn't have to because you had this this in- incredible group of stalwarts that just continued to do what they did for so long. We're going to talk about that because it really is, it's a very cool thing. And, and if you're thinking in the back of your head that that means something about the Bears and their young quarterback, it probably does, and that's probably good. We'll discuss next on The Score. Bernstein and Holmes, middays 10 to 2 on 670 The Score. Guard at 
quarterback in the NFL right now. The eight remaining quarterbacks are all in their 20s. And that's a good thing. And, and I think the oldest quarterback that's left is Mahomes. I, how old is Dak? I, I think he and uh, Dak are both 27, either 26 or 27 years Sounds old. about right. Dak is 29. Dak's 29. Oh, okay, so Dak's the oldest. Okay, yeah, Dak's the oldest. Dak's the oldest quarterback at 29. So I, I compiled a list here, and it, usually when we talk about the the current gen, we still have two of the dinosaurs that are left hanging on in in Rodgers and Brady. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not counting like Flacco, who's still on a roster, but Rodgers and Brady are not in the playoffs. That generation, in how depending on how large you want to make the circle here, Brady. I had Brady, Rogers, Rogers, Breeze, Breeze, Rivers, Rivers, Roethlisberger. If you want to include Eli Manning, maybe, sure. maybe Peyton. Yeah, yeah, he wants two Super Bowls. I mean, Matt Ryan is part of that. Yes, I, I'm glad that you brought up his name because that to me is is the cutoff. That's where that's where we get to this lost generation of quarterbacks, like we were talking about. Matt Stafford is probably on the edge there too. Yeah. Okay. So Dan, buckle up. I am going to read you most of the quarterbacks that were drafted between because I I am defining the lost generation of quarterbacking. Oh, I've 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 got it here, but let me let before you do that between 2009 and 2017. Before you do that, let me just point out that the the biggest reason why the the biggest disparity or the word I'm looking for, the void, is caused by the retirement of Andrew Luck. Mm-hmm. Part that, of it. That's, and, and, I, and let me say first, the, the, even when I say the successes are all yeah buts, because the, the list of failures is astonishing. It's, and it's, it's upsetting. It's astonishing. But, and, and, it's, and that's development, that's drafting, that's everything. But, it, but the fact that Luck bailed when he did it sort of changes the math here. The, the successes are what? Deshaun Watson, Jared Goff. No, but Deshaun Watson's part of that 2017. So, like, that's when you can start, like, you can start flipping over and saying, all right, well, then there's a group of quarterbacks that actually have done something. Like, let's let's go through okay, this, go Dan. It's, it's ugly, okay? So, 2009, you have Matthew Stafford. Mark Sanchez was the second quarterback taken. Josh Freeman, Pat White. I'm not going any lower than that because it it just gets like there are people that you'd never heard of, like Stephen McGee, you know, that were drafted. So that's 2009, 2010. Huge disasters at the top of this draft. Sam Bradford that couldn't stay healthy. Second quarterback off the board in 2010. Tim Tebow. Jimmy Clausen is still around. Colt McCoy is still around. Mike Kafka is one of the the great offensive minds in the league, but not quarterbacking. 2011, you get an MVP. You get Cam Newton. Terrell Pryor is in that class under weird circumstances. Jake Locker, Blaine Gabbert, Christian Ponder, Andy Dalton, who's had a pretty good career. Right? You're circling him. It's like, well, that guy won, you know? Colin Kaepernick. Ryan Mallett, TJ Yates. Remember the Bears drafting yep. Nathan Enderley? Nathan Enderley. Uh, this, the, the 11th Mike Bart's quor- guy. 
Right. The 11th quarterback taken in that draft was Tyrod Taylor, a.k.a. Ty God. 2012, you brought it up. Andrew Luck, RG3, Ryan Tannehill, Brandon Whedon, Brock Osweiler. Then we get Russ. We get Russell Wilson, and we get Nick Foles and Kirk Cousins. So good quarterbacks in the 2012 draft, but other than Luck and Wilson, not people that you would want to necessarily build your franchise around. Although Brock Osweiler, I believe, beat the Bears three times with three different teams. He beat the Bears three times with three different teams. That is ridiculous. Dan, 2013. Oh, my God. Mm Mm-hmm. E.J. Manuel, Geno Smith, who's had a renaissance this year, went to a Pro Bowl. The third quarterback drafted that year was Matt Mike Glennon. Ooh. And then the fourth one was Matt Barkley, Ryan Nassib. Like, you see what I mean? Like, we, we, we get down to, like, B.J. Daniels and stuff. 2014, Blake Bortles, Johnny Manziel, Teddy Bridgewater, Derek Carr, Jimmy Garoppolo. So guys okay. with good careers, but not all-time greats. Like, solid NFL quarterbacks, but nothing special. 2015, a lot of people thought that this would be a class where you'd find a star. Jameis Winston, Marcus Mariota, Garrett Grayson. You remember Garrett Grayson from Colorado State? I do not. Sean Mannion, Bryce Petty. From Baylor. Yeah, Bryce Petty famously at the Combine or the Senior Bowl, someone said, what front are they in? And he literally said, what's a front? Yeah, he he and Mitch Trubisky had very similar experiences when it came to uh, simple quarterbacking. Brett Hundley, who was around for a while as a backup. Beat the Bears. Yep. And Trevor Simeon. 2016, this is kind of the end of it, and there are some good quarterbacks in here. Jared Goff. Carson Wentz, Paxton Lynch, Ugh. and then your guy, Dan, Christian Hackenberg, Jacoby Brissett, Cody Kessler, Connor Cook from Michigan State, Let Dak, cook. Dak Prescott, and Cardell Jones. Let's see anyone else. Nate Sudfield's in here. Jeff Driscoll is in here. And then we get to 2017, and you have Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes. But that that and Mitch. And Mitch and Mitchell and CJ Beathard. But even after and that, the that Peter but, Man. but keep going if you're talking about Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold. But then you get Josh, Josh Allen. But Josh but, Rosen. I mean the, these are first round picks. But in that draft you have Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson. Right. So, you know what I mean? Like you you at least have two guys that are part of the mix. When it comes to this, but that stretch between 2009 and 2017, where there's just a desert of quarterbacking. And now you look up and you see Joe Burrow and Josh Allen and Dak and and Patrick Mahomes like doing crazy stuff where he quietly you know threw for all these touchdowns in 5,200 yards. Like it's ridiculous. Like all the stuff that he did and Jalen Hurts. In the NFC, Daniel Jones, who people kind of thought was a bust and has done a great, and Brock Purdy is out there. Well, let's go. I, I'm I'm not. Uh, no, you don't not believe yet. it. Not yet. Let, 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 congratulations on on a lovely season, and 
But, <laughs> Here's your gift basket. Yeah, let, let's let's just slow our roll with the old Brock Purdy thing. I, I I think there's a it's a perfect marriage of of coach and situation and system and skill position players and everything. I am not ready to 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 have any Purdy mania occurring. I, and I and I wish him nothing but the best. Well, I'm, one I'm of just, one of the wait. quarterbacks that's going to be playing Sunday is Joe Burrow and. Look, Matt Bowen, whenever he breaks stuff down, does a phenomenal job of it. The thing about Burrow is that Burrow does have more athleticism than he's given credit for, and he's been pretty good in RPO stuff going all the way back to LSU. But there's something that is old school about him when it comes to handling pressure in the pocket, and Matt Bowen broke this down for us yesterday. He has intangible stuff that you can't necessarily teach, uh, and he's also got the best pocket mobility in the NFL. I think he's taken over for Tom Brady in terms of someone who could teach a master class about moving within the pocket, creating a new throwing platform for yourself. That's better than anyone. Where Joe Burrow has struggled this year is versus cover two and quarters, two high zone looks. He saw from the Ravens last week and then again in week 18 from the Ravens. You look at his passing totals and the numbers are down. They are telling Joe Burrow from a defense perspective, we are not giving you vertical opportunities. You're not throwing the ball down the field to T. Hicks. We're not going to allow it. You're not throwing the ball down, down the field to Jamar Chase. We're taking that away too. We're going to force you to take the throws that are available and work the ball underneath. That's why the one element I look at in this matchup is the second-level defenders in the Buffalo Bills. The two linebackers in the slot court. They have to play excellent football because it's one thing to say we're going to play cover two, and that looks great in the chalkboard. But your second level is more important than the back level. The back level is going to do its job. They're going to stay on top of routes and drive top down the football. Your second level has to play with zone vision and with zone depth. You've got to get 12 to 15 yards deep versus Joe Burrow because if you don't, He's going to throw curls. He's going to throw comebacks. And he's going to work his way down the field. So good. Mm-hmm. And I, I love watching Joe Burrow quarterback because there, there is an element of him having to do some of that because he's running for his life. I mean, they, they still haven't quite fixed the issues with the offensive line in Cincinnati. And it puts a, a Joe Cool, Joe Shiesty, Joe B in, in peril quite a bit but he's he's learned how to navigate it and by giving him comfort of drafting the receiver that he wanted and then surrounding whether it's it's chase or or t higgins they have so many offensive weapons that he can take some risk down the field even with an offensive line that allows for there to be a ton of pressure put on him. We have high noon coming up. I have a criminal being accused of something, and I heard his answer, and my response is, I don't believe you. You don't believe the criminal? I do not. We are also going to go into the the Jeopardy archives and talk about one of Chicago's favorite athletes getting something terribly wrong. I'll be back this way on Monday. We'll settle this then. Right there. Out in the street, in front of the palace alone. Yeah, right. When? High noon? Bulls talk to start the show today, celebrating a solid win and maybe trying not to think too hard about the overall value of it, what it may mean, but it was a well-turned event by the NBA, the Bulls, the Pistons, everybody involved, the hospitality that was provided by the folks in Paris, France, but uh, just a big positive and a well-played game at a perfect time of day, and we heard from Billy Donovan talking about what they've got to do, Will Purdue, his thoughts, and Cody Westerlund's as well. Then we talked about the quarterbacks that are remaining in the NFL playoffs, and Lawrence detailed 
When we say Lost Generation, boy, those those, those names do all the work for you. All right, we were talking about this earlier in the week, but we didn't have the sound of it. And uh, obviously, this has been in the news for the last couple of years with the two baseball teams because they both have played in this state. It was a question on Celebrity Jeopardy, and one of Chicago's best athletes couldn't get it right. The 50 states for 300, please. In Field of Dreams, a question is asked, is this heaven? No. It's this Midwestern state, also known as the Corn State. Tori. What is Wisconsin? No. Oh. Candace. What is Nebraska? No. Oh. What is Iowa? Oh, Iowa. I knew it. Whew. Sweating a little bit. Candace, <laughs> no, go ahead. <laughs> My parents are from Iowa. They're going to be furious. They are going to be furious. Yeah, and, what you know. hell? I mean, I know the movie sucks, but but you got to know it. And why is Patton Oswalt not buzzing in? Why doesn't he know it? I, I'm not but, cutting him any slack either. Well, he should probably know it because of the movie aspect of it, but he's not a big sports guy. No, but he's a... It's, 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 come on. It's a I, piece of Americana, whether I, it's good or I not. I agree, and I think that for Patton, because it's a movie, he, he probably is like, ah, I should have gotten that one, but... He might have he might have just heard like sports and just zoned out. <laughs> and he was leading by so much, why risk it? Yeah, there's no right? reason. <laughs> this from News Channel 8 in Tampa, WFLA. Delvin Sassnet was in denial mode Tuesday when it came to allegations he offered a venomous coral snake to an undercover officer. He said I did not have no venomous snakes. <laughs> okay. R- Reporter Stacy De Silva followed up. What did you have? His reply: I had corn snakes. Now, if you remember, I believe Matt Spiegel was the owner of a corn snake. That he he and Reuben had a, had a corn snake together, and it escaped in his high rise, and he replaced it immediately with another corn snake. Right. Is that how it went? I don't know. I I'm I didn't pretty know sure. that, I didn't even know that they had a bunch of snakes. I'm pretty no, I think he, I'm pretty sure he just had the, the the one that they couldn't find and who knows where it is now. But ch- this is unbelievable. So this guy says I did not have no venomous snakes. Technically he's correct a because double negative, yes, though. he did not have no venomous snakes because He was one of eight suspects arrested in a years-long investigation by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission meant to disrupt a venomous reptile black market. The agency seized nearly 200 snakes, including inland taipan, bushmaster, (laughs) rhinoceros viper, African bush viper, Gaboon Viper, Green Mamba, oh. Eyelash Viper, Forest Cobra, Puff Adder, Saw-Scaled Vipers, and multiple species of Spitting Cobra. Oh. That is very different from no venomous snakes. Yeah. that that That's... Like, that the only things missing like, uh, here are, are, like, the golden 
lance head or, and, and the fur to lance and their banded crate. This is an all-star team. This is an absolute exotic dream team of some of the most dangerous snakes on the planet. Come so, on, man. everything about yesterday's Bulls broadcast was joyous. Like, the graphics were great. The shots of Paris were wonderful. The way that they set up everything. The post-game show we've already talked about. But there was a moment inside of the broadcast where I just I, – I went on a laughing jag because of it. And I thought I would share. We are very used to Stacey King – doing the the reads and doing the nationwide read and everyone sings along well stacy had something special for us yesterday all right i know people have been waiting for this from france you can follow our bulls insiders from anywhere in the world all season long on nbcsportschicago.com presented by nationwide agent jeff vukovich get to enjoy knowing the book as much as you do the jingle at jeffbook.com and stacy l'ensemble du pays est de votre côté I'm in the national man. I'm in the national man. Oh, Mr. Worldwide. The real Mr. Worldwide. Oh, boy. Oh, Bulls Nation. America. Bringing the French heat. Oh. That's right. Stacey King did the nationwide read in French. Nationwide is on your side in French. So I just, I could not stop laughing. I love the two of them together. I love how each of them act as the other's hype man. And it's just fun. And that's what you're supposed to do. Do something fun and silly with something that is fun and silly. So shout out to Stacey King and Adam Amin for continuing to raise the bar when it comes to my enjoyment of Bulls basketball. I also want to follow up real quick. The people asking in that Candace Parker Jeopardy clip where you hear Maya Bialik, the host, the other voice when she calls on Tori, that's Tori DeVito, who's David Ross's girlfriend, right? So she she should have known too. That's what I'm thinking. So next time we talk to Rossi, we got, we got to ask about that. If, if he... If, there's going to be some movie education going on here. Yeah, we ha- we might have to play that clip for him and discuss all of those things. So wait, are you leaving now? I am. I have uh, an appointment I was unable to move. So my weekend starts now, and you will carry us up through Joe Ostrowski, Kevin Fishbane, and beyond. Huh, so wait a minute. Like noon to two where I'm by myself. Face <gasps> huh. drop. Huh. That's interesting. The things that one could do. Uh oh. Dan have Dan have a great weekend. Thank you, you too. That is Dan Bernstein. He is one half of the Bernstein and Home Show. I am the other half of the Bernstein and Home Show. But for the next two hours, it'll just be the Home Show. That's next here on the Score.